Our passage this morning is found in 2 Samuel 24. Uh, In your bulletin, it says we'll do the whole chapter, but we will just look at the majority of the verses. But I want to uh, tell you, this is a passage that once again reminds me of the masterpiece the Bible is. I don't know that I say that every week. I probably don't. I believe it. I know most of you believe that. But this passage um, has so many ways it, it just shines. But one of the ways it shines is in the fact that at first glance, it doesn't seem to be very shiny. It's going to be very challenging uh, to understand it fully, even in one discussion. But it is the very end of the first and second Samuel corpus. It's really the last moments of David's kingliness. Uh, next week, we'll have some of his final words, and we'll be wrapping up this wonderful series. When I say wonderful, I don't mean what I've done. I mean King David's wonderful. Average series on a wonderful king. How's that? So what's going on here? David is going to, once again, sin, but he's going to repent, and he's going to show us what what true repentance looks like. So let's look together. Um, Let's start at verse 1. I believe that's on the screen behind me. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. And then we're going to jump ahead to verse 10, but those intermediate verses, Joab does just what David commanded him to do. Verse 10, but David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and said to him, Three years of famine come to you in your land, or... Will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in the land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. And David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. And then they have a discussion about the price, and in 24... David says, but the king said to Arana, not but no, but I will buy it from you for a price. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt, did I skip something? 
I'm sorry, I didn't have it in my notes. Let me read all of verse 24. But the king said to Arana, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. Sorry, burnt offerings and peace offerings, period. New sentence. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, uh, sometimes these old passages catch us with our modern ears. We, we need your spirit to open our eyes to see the mercy, to know your love, and to know your shepherding heart. Amen. If you live in Stillwater or have driven anywhere in the town of Stillwater in the last, say, three months, you've seen the, the sign, the banners up for Killers of the Flower Moon. Raise your hand if you've read that. Just going to do a quick shaming session. Excellent book. About a year ago, Tina Shiler put it on Facebook, and I thought, I'm going to buy that and read it. it was, it's, it's like a two-day read. It's one of those books you just can't put down. Um, it's about the 1920s here in Oklahoma, actually in Osage County. It's the, it's the origins of the FBI. What, the nutshell of what happens is the Osage were driven from their land in Kansas, like many Native Americans, but unlike being forced into a place, they decided to buy Property. They bought what they considered to be the absolute last property anybody would ever want to take from them, Osage County. And they each owned their own portion. <clears throat> Guess what was discovered in Osage County after that? Oil. So it didn't take long for them to become exceedingly wealthy and for the government and white men to come in and try to oversee that in a very racial way. <clears throat> and I won't give the book away, but it leads to many, many uh, heartbreaking um, crimes. So read the book. But the reason I bring it up is it's a reminder again of the fact that there's this something inside of all of us that when we're given our acre of land, when we're given our responsibility, what we're supposed to do, we often have right alongside that an evil impulse to find our own good in the situation. And, th- and that's really a backdrop to what I think is happening in this passage. So I'm going to tell you what I think we're going to find at the end, but you won't believe me until we get there, okay? Can you, you understand that? This is a hard passage, so I'm gonna say what I'm about to say, and at the end I'll remind you, and you'll say, either, ah, oh, I see that, yes, or he didn't do a good job. Let's hope it's the former. Here's, the, here's our proposition for the morning. Because we are known by the true shepherd, Christians are designed to shepherd others. That's your design. I want you to be thinking, Where am I shepherding in my life? So that's what we're going to talk about. The outline, three things, problem, punishment, and provision. So first of all, we'll look at the problem in the passage. Um, If you study this passage or you just read it and and wonder what's going on, you're not alone. Most commentators will say there's like six, seven, eight, even 12 possibilities. What's the problem? In verse 1, God seems to be telling David to go count the people. Number them. In verse 2, David seems to say, okay, and sends Joab to number the people. And then later, David seems to have sinned. And now there's this horrible punishment. There's a lot going on there. And let me encourage you that I think one of the fun things about being a pastor is we get to take a perspective. Like, I get to choose one of the six options and say, this is the one I think it is. And that's what I'm going to do today. And I think it's the right one, by the way. 
God says again, the anger of the Lord, or the scripture says again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go, number Israel and Judah. And then David responds, and we know there's a problem because he goes to Joab, who's the commander of the army. <clears throat> but Joab, Joab's not the greatest guy. Like Joab's, is it Luca Brazi? How do you say it from the Godfather? Joab's like that guy. And, you know, hey, I've got something for you to do. You know it's not going to go well. Only this time, Joab is told to go count, and he says to God, it's not, I didn't put it in the passage on the, on the screen, but he, he says to David, excuse me, like, are you sure? Like, why are you doing this? Please don't do this. And David insists. So even Joab, this nefarious fella, um, and if you want proof that he's when, God, when David passes the, the kingdom to Solomon, he's like, take out Joab. He's no good. So I'm not just making this up. But then in verse 10, David himself immediately says, his heart, it says his heart was struck and he had numbered the people and he knew he had sinned. Okay, so I'm just continuing to let you know there's a sin in this passage. And we don't believe that God would convict you of sin unless you knew you sinned. And David seems to know he has sinned. So what's the problem? Here's what I believe is happening. When God says, go and number Israel and Judah... He's saying, be a shepherd. The flock are restless. We've had Absalom in a conspiracy. We've had Sheba in a conspiracy. And furthermore, the backdrop is you're about to hand this kingdom over to somebody, your son, and they're, they're basically following whoever shows up. Number them, shepherd them, care for them. And David hears an opportunity. And what is the opportunity he hears? Conscription. I'm going to raise an army. I'm going to be like the other nations. See, Israel's method of warfare up to that time had been um, more uh, militia style. They, they would come up, they were fighters, but they had vocations. And then they would fight when the war came to them. David's like, no, let's make a standing army. We'll number them, we'll enlist them, and we'll have one of the greatest armies in the region. And furthermore, my guess would be the people liked the idea too. Think back to Saul. Saul himself was like the king from the other nations, and, and he was going to be this great victorious king. So the people themselves probably unwittingly thought, this is a great idea. Let's have a great army. The problem is, as one of the commentators says, he says, you know, this draft, this, this idea of a census is not a benign act of counting, but an act of bureaucratic terrorism. When Solomon dedicates the temple... One of the things he says is, the reason God has allowed me to build this temple is because I'm a king of peace. The people around me, the, the other nations, are not trying to war with me. But the moment you get this army built, the moment you had that army developed, what would happen? You scrimmage. The other nations are like, hey, we got our army, you got your army. Let's fight. And people would die. And, um, another book, I'm going to do only book references this sermon, Modern Times by Paul Johnson. It's about this thick. I've been reading it for the better part of a decade. You can ask my wife. It's on the side of our bed, like maybe a page every week. It's that bad. What will happen is I'll go on a road trip and listen, get 30 pages done. It's very long. What it's about is about how the modern era, starting around the end of World War I, all the way through the fall of the Soviet Union, how the totalitarian state led to more deaths in that century than every other century before it. 
at the hand of government. Listen to this quote um, from a, someone commenting on the book says, the destruct- no, this is actually Paul Johnson. The destructive capacity of the individual, however vicious, is small. Of the state, however, well-intentioned, almost limitless. Individual destructive ability, small. A state who has an army and power and motives, endless. He says, expand the state, and that destructive capacity necessarily expands to What's going on in this, the problem then, to summarize it, is this. God tells David to shepherd. David thinks to himself, I'll build an army, and, and I'll carry out the plan of God for myself. And I want to show you in verse, uh, this kind of fascinating thing. In First Chronicles 21, the story is repeated. Only this time, listen to how the writer describes verse 1. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Wow. So God can call us to do something, and yet Satan can move right in and say, I don't know if that's exactly the way you should be hearing that. Maybe what God means is this. And David confesses that sin. And the question for us then is, in what ways are we thinking about being like other nations? In what ways are we blending right in to the nations around us where God would have us shepherd in that situation? And by shepherd, I mean take care of your acre, whatever God has given you in your family, in your studies, in your work, in your civic duties. We, We are called to one thing as Christians to shepherd, and oftentimes we find we want to be like the other nations. I'm going to build on this as we go, but just keep that as we, as we move forward in the back of your mind. That's what I believe the problem is. And of course, now we come to the more exciting point, punishment. Right? This generation doesn't like punishment like every other generation used to. I'm just kidding. No one likes punishment. But I have to talk about it because it's in our passage. And I want to talk about it like this. I've been bringing this concept up lately. What is true repentance? What is it when the person really sees the harm they've done, the way they've gone against God's law and God's will? And I want you to notice that what makes David magnificent is his true repentance in this passage under the area of punishment. So let's look at verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he numbered his people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant. David sees, there's two things we're going to look at, David. He sees the need for punishment, and he accepts punishment. I've been really trying to figure out how to talk about the need for punishment. It's a very difficult topic, right? I, I think all of us get the sense that our culture moves into an area of, you know, just, just let it go. Do you sense that in our culture? I, I sense that as a parent. I, you know, I, I hate carrying out punishment. It's very hard. And, and let me say, it should be difficult, right? It shouldn't be fun. If it's fun for you, let's talk. But on the other hand, we all know that hell has to be a place where there's no containment, right? Hell is going to have a place where, like, a, a definition has to be, and there's many definitions, but there's absolutely zero law. Like, whoever's stronger wins. And can you imagine what your world would look like if anyone could just walk up to you and do whatever they wanted without any punishment? We need containment. We need structure. We need, we need things like that. And so God carries out punishment. 
and it's hard for him to do, but he does it because it's absolutely critical. And, and let me say one other thing. This is a little philosophical. Um, I think one of the mistakes we make when we think about punishment is we think, isn't life neutral? Like, we kind of, we, we, we fall into this thought process. We wake up in America with electricity and our refrigerator usually at work. You know, life's good. So when bad things happen, we just think, oh, that there's like this normal here, and then there's some bad things and some good things. But that's not the biblical picture at all. That in the moment Adam and Eve sinned, death entered the picture. And every breath you have is a complete gift from God. Right? And, and the reason that we're even walking around and living is good. So it's not like, well, this is neutral, and then every now and then a bad thing happens and a good thing happens. It's all blessing. It's all provision. God is keeping you alive every day. Death has is, is been removed for a season, but it is coming. And it comes in the form of disease and brokenness and evil. And when you see it pop up in the Bible, like with these 70,000 people dying, it's, it's, or when Uzzah touches the ark, these moments make you think, oh, that's so mean and that's so evil. And it is evil and it is harsh. And we should look at David's response, which we will. But please understand that it could be far worse. I remember going to the mall when the kids were little. And they had those little um, play areas where the kids just run around. You know what I'm talking about? They climb and run and jump. What's that called? The play area? Play area. And I remember thinking, there should be a lot more collisions than there are. Right? I mean, shouldn't there? God is, I just picture angels in there, like, moving the kids and protection and things we can't see. Yet in this passage, the, 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 the veil has been pulled back. And we see it, and it makes it very hard to handle. Um, I don't know if that does a good um, picture of the need for punishment, but the point is there are consequences to problems. And when we see those, it's very harsh. Coleman is in the second day of a driver's ed course. I had to sit through one hour of that course yesterday, and I was reminded of my driver's ed course. But you know the number one tool driver's ed courses use, right? Videos. And they are horrific. They've gotten worse. At least in my era, it was like the old like, video car, and they just used it for a year. Now it's like they had GoPros in the middle of an accident. Like, oh, I won't even describe it. It was, it was bad, I hope. I hope you feel like it was bad. Why do they do that? They want to show you, here's what's going to happen when you glance down and text. Here's what's going to happen when the light goes green and you just floor it without looking for a semi that might be coming through. Etc. Etc. They showed us enough videos that I want to make Grayson go through driver's ed. So you're going back through, and I think Emily and I are going to go back through. And I recommend all of you. What's the point? That you see the punishment. God graciously shows you what can happen. And in this passage, the seventy thousand people dying is very tiny compared to what would have happened had David developed this army and gone to war. Right? They would have had years and years and years of many, many more deaths. His people, other people, who knows? So God comes in and wakes him up with the punishment. But now let's look at David's responses to this punishment. Uh, it's amazing how true repentance, if you want to know if someone's really repentant, they're not saying, Do I need to be punished? I'm always suspicious of the person that's like on death row that becomes a Christian and says, Now should I get out? 
I think the Christians should say, I'm going. I did it. I confess. And that's what David does. David welcomes the punishment. <clears throat> in fact, he participates in the punishment. So true repentance, he confesses seemingly before he's caught. Secondly, he welcomes, meaning he knows it's coming. He doesn't want it, but he knows it's coming. And he's given three options. And I'm going to just kind of paraphrase the options. One is three years of famine. One is three months of being pursued by a bad guy. And one is three days of pestilence. And David says, in great, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. The, the wisdom is unbelievable. See, a proud person would say, famine. By the way, a famine didn't mean usually that you personally would starve, though it could. It meant you become subservient to the people who had the food an economic issue. So you lose your nation status because now this power has the food. You have to go to them and you become kind of a beggar. You do what they need you to do. But David might be able to politically work around that, right? So if he were prideful, he could say, I could handle that for three years. Or how about this? Someone pursues me physically. I could handle that. I'm, I'm David. I'm the warrior. But rather than that, he realizes, no, I see my sin I see my need for grace. I'm choosing the third option, which is putting all of my chips, so to speak, in the, in the side of God's mercy. I'm going to trust God. And for three days, God unleashes this pestilence or allows it to be released. Do you repent like that? Do you, in a way, welcome God's punishment? We don't want it, but do, do we at least see the mercy in it like David does? And what's amazing is God is merciful. Our last point is provision. God does show mercy. Um, in verse 16, if you'll put that back up, it says, And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who, who was working destruction among the people. Now listen, this is God stopping the calamity, saying, it is enough. Now, stay your hand. And look at what God does in his provision. Look at David's response in verse 17. Behold, I have sinned. He already thought that, right? And I have done what is wicked. He already thought that. But look what he says next. But these sheep, do you hear what's happening? David saw the people that he was going to number as robots, as people who could serve him and build his kingdom. And now, in his repentance, he sees them as sheep. He sees them as sheep who need a shepherd. You see that? When I was studying the passage, and this is what I said when I, when I opened up, it's going to come make more sense as we move forward. So when I mentioned the problem, maybe you agreed, maybe you didn't. I'm going to try a little bit more convincing here, even though we're under provision. Um, the word in verse 1 for number is not the word in verse 2. I'm not sure there's an exegetical significant point there. and the, I don't want to be careful when I say that because the words are very much synonymous. But the word used in verse 1 is also found in Jeremiah 33 for counting. So the question we're looking at is what does God mean when he says count and what did David mean? 
And I believe, as I've already said, God meant shepherd. And I want you to hear in Jeremiah 33, we're looking at verses 12 to 17. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place that is waste, without man or beast, and in all of its cities, there shall again be habitations of shepherds resting their flocks. In the cities of the hill country, in the cities of Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negev, in the land of Benjamin, the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, flocks shall again pass under the hands of the one who counts them, says the Lord. Do you hear the way God thinks of counting? Flourishing, beauty. He goes on, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promises I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. That's as far as I'm going to read. The provision of God is that he's going to provide a shepherd who will tend to the flock lovingly, longing for outflow, longing for growth, longing for fountains to come out. Israel was not going to be the dominant military industrial complex in the middle of the ancient world. It was to be the fountain of God's love and mercy and justice. And that is our role. That is your role. That is my role. The church's role. The individual's role. How do you see yourself carrying that out? I will confess to you that if you want to think of an application, it's the pastor who often struggles the most with this. I can't tell you how many times I've heard the term nickels and noses as a pastor. How many noses do you have? Oh, we've got like 600. How many nickels do you have? We have a budget of about X, Y, or Z. That's what pastors are doing. I want you to know that. Not in our denomination, right, Shane? We're good. We don't want that. We want shepherds. Pray for me. Pray for Shane. Pray for our elders. Pray for the pastors in this city to not count nickels and noses. But to shepherd. But what about for you? Maybe it's your own job. Well, I'm in, I'm in marketing, so it doesn't matter. Yes, it does. Whatever you do, you are a neighbor to people that you have to shepherd through love, through care, through wisdom. Are you carrying out God's justice and mercy well in your acre of land? For a great illustration, let's look at Jesus. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he's got a very big problem on his hands. Um, he's got to convince the religious community that he's the Messiah, and he's only got a few days. And so what does he do first? He heads to the temple to worship, right? And he walks in, and he had been reading How to Win Friends and Influence People. And he thought, let me remember everyone's name. No. What he thought was, okay, this is a group of people selling, like, pigeons and animals to be sacrificed. What's wrong with that, by the way? Is there anything wrong? I mean, that's a good thing. That way, if you're wanting to participate in the Passover, you don't have to bring anything. Just come in. It's like McDonald's. Except they were gathered in the court of the Gentiles. Did you know that? There's this place in the temple that God had designed for those that are outsiders to come in, right, and worship. And they had decided, we don't need that. 
Forget Gentiles. We're going to use that to sell, have our garage sell. And he's upset, and he cleanses the temple. That just means he's, he makes a, a physical, he doesn't hurt anyone. Makes a lot of loud pops and turns over tables, okay? And then he says this. It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Do you want to see the flourishing of the nations through your work? Are you shepherding? Is that what you're doing? That's what David needs to do. That's what we need to do. So how do we do it? We've got two minutes to figure out how we do it. Maybe three minutes. I want to remind you of the opening proposition. Now we're coming all the way back, and this is a perfect opportunity to not find it. Who wrote it down? Oh, there it is. The opening proposition, because we are known by the true shepherd, Christians are designed to shepherd others. I hope you're feeling the weight right now of this burden to change and become a shepherd in your own world. But I hope you also hear that the Bible starts with the indicative first. What is true of you leads to what you do. And let me tell you what's true of you. You have been shepherded. See, Jesus walks in to that temple. Do you know where that temple was built? It was built, let's look at 2 Chronicles 3.11 or 3.1. Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. That place, Mount Moriah, is where Abraham was told to take his son Isaac and perform a sacrifice. And God saved him by the blood of another, a sacrifice, right? One day, someday, we knew there would be another sacrifice. But let's continue reading in verse 1 of chapter 3 of Second Chronicles. Okay, so the temple's built. On Mount Moriah, where Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, but also it says, where the Lord had appeared to David, his father, at the place that David had appointed, on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. It's another name for Arana. That temple that Jesus goes in and cleanses is built on the exact site that David has now built this altar for the Lord. This is the spot where God says, here's how, David, you shepherd others. You shepherd others by dying for them. Look at what David says in verse 17. I have sinned, I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And God says, that's exactly how I'm going to do it. That's exactly what's going to happen. One day, someday, the true shepherd Jesus will be on this spot, sacrifice. I know it's not Golgotha, but all of the sacrifices in the temple point to the one true sacrifice that is Jesus. And his blood was poured out so that the wickedness of God could be averted for you and me. Is that your hope? Is that, is that what drives you? If it is, you'll begin to think about other people. If that's what moves you in this world, you will begin to actually think about how to spread that to people. If that's real for you and you receive that, your righteousness is no longer based on what you do and how good your army looks and how you match the other nations. It's simply based on who Jesus is. And you receive that by faith. And that will move you to shepherd well in your particular context. Let's pray. 
Father, we praise you that you had a plan. And Lord David sinned, but we praise you for his righteousness that he repented. All because of the fact that he knew that one day, someday there would be a king who would die and give us his righteousness. Father, forgive us for trying to build our own kingdoms. Forgive us for trying to look like the nations around us. Teach us to abide in you, press towards you, rest in your mercy because of what you've done for us on that threshing floor. Amen.